Hey, podcast listeners, this is Greg Dalton. You're listening to our new C1 Review, a podcast connecting highlights from three shows. Thanks for joining our conversation. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. I'm Greg Dalton. Countries across the globe are trying to quit their carbon addiction. That's one reason oil demand is soft, and Wall Street is starting to ask questions about the risks of fossil fuels. We've been hearing about climate risk in terms of of agriculture and transportation problems, but in terms of its impact on economic markets, it's just really now coming to the consciousness of, of mainstream investors. Clean energy companies are beginning to grab a bigger slice of the investment pie. Today, the largest coal company in the world is Peabody Coal. And Sun Edison stock price is higher than Peabody Coal, so we're worth more than Peabody Coal. I'm very proud of that. How is climate disruption disrupting financial markets? Up next on Climate One. Climate One is changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. Wild weather is impacting Main Street. It's also trickling onto Wall Street, and that's where we're putting our attention today. Floods, extreme cold snaps, and other severe weather are hitting the corporate bottom line. The nasty polar vortex of 2014 compelled Walmart and other retailers to close stores, hitting sales and disappointing Wall Street. Disasters such as Superstorm Sandy, which was amplified by climate disruption, can hurt tourism and property values for years. As those costly disasters accumulate, there's increasing rumbling that stocking your portfolio with fossil fuels may come with hidden risks. Pension funds and insurance companies are trying to understand those risks in a hot and crowded world. To start off this discussion, we're joined by Andy Behar, CEO of As You Sow, a shareholder advocacy group that presses energy companies to disclose climate risk. Lisa Goldberg is director of research at Aperio Group, an investment firm that manages $8 billion in assets. She's a former director of research at MSCI and an adjunct professor of statistics at the University of California at Berkeley. Josh Shine is CEO of Global Key Advisors, an investment firm and former senior portfolio manager at Morgan Stanley. Here's our conversation about climate risks and rewards. Lisa Goldberg, let's begin with you. Can you tell us what the carbon bubble is? Well, any bubble is assets pouring in unreasonably to a particular asset class. We had a housing bubble that I think we all remember in 2008 burst, and there's a concern that carbon-rich assets could lose their value unexpectedly, and investors will be at a loss. And why would they change suddenly? What is it about carbon that is risky, or that, that, what's, what's driving the, the potential bubble, if there is one? Well, there is a huge body of science saying that we're having warming to the planet due to carbon being released into the atmosphere. And as a result of that, governments could come and say, we can no longer burn carbon as we have, and then oil in the ground will not have the same value that it once did. And this could change the value of companies that had previously been making a big profit from carbon. Andrew Behar, let's get you on that in terms of how this is starting to percolate into the consciousness of big Wall Street investment banks saying, this is credible. Carbon Tracker came out with a report, Mm -hmm. and what they said was if you actually look at what the proven reserves of the 200 largest oil and gas and coal companies in the world, if you were to add all those up and you were to pull them up out of the ground and burn them, you would be raising the temperature of the earth by 5 degrees centigrade. And that's something that's not acceptable. So therefore, a majority of them are going to stay underground. And that's the notion of of stranded assets. And so it's been picked up by the International Energy Agency, the World Economic Forum, Citibank, HSBC. And it's rippled through the entire financial market. For instance, Barclays just downgraded all of their investments in utilities. So I think what we're seeing is that the financial markets are really starting to understand that there is a lot of risk on the fossil fuel side, and there's a great deal of opportunity on building clean energy infrastructure. 
So there's a capital flow that is happening. Josh Shine, you like energy stocks for their stability, oil and gas companies. I mean, I, I'm, I'm neutral on uh, if the S&P is 10% energy, that's where I want to be. And I, I try to find greener things to, to get into, but the, the volatility is higher. I use a database where we look at 5,000 publicly traded companies. You know, 10 years ago when I first ran a screen for the word solar, there were three companies that came up in the database um, I ran the screen yesterday, and I found 189 companies that had the word solar in their description. There's more to work with. So I, I do have options. There are things I can do besides fossil fuels, which is, which is gratifying. So it, it definitely has you know, my attention, and I, and I get into these stocks. But if you buy into an index, most commonly the S&P 500, you're getting a pretty healthy basket of fossil fuel stocks, Exxon, Shell, etc. So if you're investing in indexing, smart thing to do. You're owning fossil fuel stocks. Isn't that right, Josh Hine? That's correct. But then you can also get sector indices so that you can avoid fossil fuel stocks. And there are even companies out there like Motif that will let you put together your own little investment universe of a particular set of stocks, something like I don't want fossil fuels. I mean, that, it does exist and it's possible. There are quantitative tools that you can use and stay very close, say, to the S&P 500, a broad market index, without carbon by simply reweighting the stocks that remain and how many people or institutions are doing that now? I would say definitely a growing percentage interested in just staying with the index without carbon and another group targeting where the money that's come out of carbon stocks ought to go through an index, uh, an environmental innovator index, which looks at companies that get a large percentage of their revenue and their income from green waste, from renewable energy, from, from those types of uh, activities. I, I think, Andy, I just let me just add to that, because BlackRock recently came out with a fund that, well, it's the largest investor in the world. They're seeing that there's a market for a carbon-free product so that large institutions could move, you know, $50 million, $100 million in, in a chunk over into this and have reduced their or eliminated their carbon exposure. So products are coming. Stanford took a move away from fossil fuels recently and divested from publicly traded coal companies, small portion of their overall portfolio. But Lisa Goldberg, does that hurt the coal companies when Stanford says, ah, we don't like you, we're not going to invest in you, it's symbolic, but does it really have an impact? There is certainly a very big psychological impact with a science-leading institution like Stanford. People pay attention but Josh Shine, if stock for coal companies go down, that's just cheaper for people who that's like... That's the thing. It, are coal you creating companies? opportunities for other people to, to, to take the money you've left on the table? That's uh, not sure. Um, if you're just creating opportunities for others to come and buy them cheaper or if you're really having an impact. In um, the case of coal, I mean, the coal companies were hurting all of these big endowments because coal dropped 58% in the last four years. So the fact that there is risk, that is, I think, the bottom line, is that, you know, we talk about the carbon bubble, well the first bursting of the carbon bubble is coal. It's just collapsing. And oil is going to be next. So it's a shift, a big shift. We're talking about invest and divest in fossil fuels at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Our guests are Andrew Behar, CEO of As You Sow, a shareholder advocacy group. Also, Lisa Goldberg, director of research with the Aperio Group, and Josh Shine, CEO of Global Key Advisors. Josh Shine, there's more opportunities to invest in clean solar, et cetera. Those companies could be pretty risky, too. Right. I don't necessarily want to put 10% of the portfolio into solar. It's too risky. I mean, I feel like I, I want to do it, but then I, you know, I, might, I feel like I... You, you might know. get fired. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm being paid to represent clients on Wall Street, not Washington. And that part of me says that, and part of me wants to do a better job, so I'll try to fit the solar into it. But it's a struggle. But what about clean tech much more broadly defined? I mean, all these companies where you're putting intelligence into products are actually decreasing the demand for fossil fuels. And so there's so many companies, there's literally hundreds and hundreds of new technologies that are out there that are going to make great investments. Obviously, everyone talks about Tesla and SolarCity and all these companies. Let's get back to uh, growing global demand. While it's true that because of auto efficiency in the United States and partly the recession and partly regulation, vehicle miles, that sort of thing is, is going down. But globally, Andy Behar, there are 
a billion people without electricity, energy poverty, people who live on a dollar a day, those people want to get up into the middle class, as 300 million people have done in China, and they are hungry for a connected, electron-powered lifestyle that we have. And that will increase global demand, which means the Exxons and the Chevrons and the coal companies will say, hey, we're just satisfying demand, and we're going to suck it out of the ground and make money as long as people want it. The key thing that you just said is an electron-based demand. So how you make those electrons is really what the issue is. Is it less expensive to build a giant coal plant in India, run transmission lines, or is it more efficient to put solar and wind out in the villages? The thing about renewables is once you install them, the only cost is going to be servicing your debt. With commodities, you're constantly having to buy coal, having to buy gas, having to buy you know, something to burn, and those fluctuate up and down all the time. We haven't talked yet about water. There's also some water risk, too much of it or too little of it. Andy Behar, are you engaging companies on water risk? It's one of the things that we talk to the utilities about, particularly there's a lot of water that's used in coal-fired generation. And so as shareholders, we're seeing there's a major risk. Last summer, they had to shut down power plants because water was too hot and there wasn't enough water. And they're having to mix this into their analyses of how they're going to make their business model work. So water is, is a big issue with utilities. Lisa Goldberg, where are the big risks or the big opportunities for innovation in water? Well, just uh, imagine in your own home, if you didn't just push all water down the same pipe, you would be able to reuse some water, say, on your plants more efficiently. And so there's huge innovation opportunities for refitting homes and refitting businesses to use water more intelligently and recycling. That would just be one, one example. Andy Behar, tell us about getting companies to recognize some of the fossil balance sheet risks we've been talking about. We spent a lot of time talking to the pension funds, CalPERS, CalSTRS, New York City, New York State, to some of the big unions. They were all very concerned because the impact of climate across the whole portfolio, like when you have a Hurricane Sandy, when you have a drought, when you have $70 billion worth of damage to the United States year after year after year, and who's going to pay for that? And they see it as impact across their whole portfolio. There is deeper risk here than anybody is talking about, and it goes across the whole economy as well as within the oil and gas industry. And what did ExxonMobil say? That received a lot of headlines because of their previous role in funding, research, communications, denying climate science. I'll quote them. They said, we are confident that none of our hydrocarbon reserves are now or will ever become stranded. And the reason that Exxon said that they don't see any risk is because they said, we must uplift the poor and the impoverished and the vulnerable of the world through burning our fossil fuels. What's interesting is that that statement came out the same day as the IPCC-5 report came out, which was reviewed by 830 scientists of every nation of the world. Looking at 10,000 peer-reviewed studies, it said exactly the opposite. Those very people that Exxon says we're going to uplift will become climate refugees. And I will quote the IPCC-5, that there's going to be death, injury, disrupted livelihood, breakdown of infrastructure, electricity, water supply, and health, particularly for the least developed countries and vulnerable communities. So you have two very different visions of the world. You have Exxon saying, we're going to save the world burning our oil. And then you've got all the scientists saying business as usual is going to create havoc. Let's go to our audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. I work with 350 Bay Area advocating for divestment of California's public institutions from the 200 largest fossil fuel companies. And some of the people that we talk to say that it's a better strategy to do shareholder engagement because then you can get the companies to change their business practices. I'm wondering if you can just comment on how you see divestment versus um, shareholder action for fossil fuel investments at this point. Andrew Behar, you kind of support both, inside, outside? Bill McKibben's response to the Exxon report is Exxon has now come out publicly and said that they are outside of the laws of physics, I believe he said. And (laughs) Wall Street looks at that really carefully. When Exxon says, no risk, I think what this does is it really helps Wall Street to look at Exxon and say, lots of risk. We need to really assess this. And so I think the shareholder advocacy and the engagement and getting that report is critical. And that's why I think it received so much press. Um, You know, there were like 300 press reports about this. Now, um, 
pressure from all the divestment caused a movement. I mean, it's really caused a very loud movement where there was silence before. So I think it's really both, and these two things work really well together. been discussing financial risk and opportunity created by the changing climate with Andrew Behar, CEO of As You Sow, Lisa Goldberg, Director of Research at Aperio Group, and Josh Shine, CEO of Global Key Advisors. You're listening to Climate One. Ditching fossil fuels will save trillions of dollars in coming decades. That's according to the International Energy Agency, the world's foremost authority on powering the economy. Smart businesses that see that opportunity are scrambling to get a piece of the wealth created from a global oil change. Two entrepreneurs join me now to talk about making clean money. Brad Matson is CEO of Siva Power and author of The Solar Phoenix, How America Can Rise from the Ashes of Solyndra to World Leadership in Solar 2.0. And Jigger Shaw, founder of Sun Edison, one of the country's largest solar companies and author of Creating Climate Wealth, Unlocking the Impact Economy. Here's our conversation about building climate wealth. Jigger Shaw, when you were 16 years old, you read a book that changed your life. Tell us that story. It was one of those books that you were sold door to door when you know college students sold uh, books through their backpacks. And what was interesting is it was a book on electricity. Here's how coal power worked. Here's how wind power worked. Here's how nuclear power worked. Here's how solar power worked. And what struck me was that every technology got two pages. So in my mind, all of them were equal, right? So I didn't know any better that coal was the dominant form of energy back then and solar was really small. And after reading it, I thought, well, you know, this solar thing actually does seem to make a whole lot of sense. There's a lot of sunlight. And, you know, when you talk to five-year-olds or six-year-olds and you ask them where the electricity comes from, they always say, the sun and the wind. They never say it came from, you know, digging up the ground in uh, Wyoming. Um, <laughs> and you worked at BP first. They had a solar energy division. Uh, in 1999, 2000, BP was the largest manufacturer of solar panels in the world. And, and I went to go work for them. And so I talked to people that were in the northern slopes of Alaska or talked to people in Azerbaijan and other places at BP. And they were all universally pro-solar, all of them. Right? And so I think you know, that's one of the big lessons I got out of BP was that people in general actually for this resource efficiency revolution. Brad Matson, tell us how you got to energy and, and uh, where you are now. I was working with social entrepreneurs, and whether you're in Africa or India or in the jungles of Nicaragua, if you want to enrich lives, you want to like, reduce poverty, energy is at the base of it. So I was doing small like solar lanterns in Africa, mini-grid biomass power plants in remote villages in India or hybrid wind solar panel power installations in the jungles of Nicaragua. And when I was working with all these uh, social entrepreneurs, I fell in love with solar. And I really wanted to see technology benefit humanity in a more direct way. And I saw solar is a, a way to really do that. It can have a profound positive impact. So you're talking about social entrepreneurs. They want to change the world through a company rather than a nonprofit. But Jiggershaw, your book is a big part about the reason solar's been successful. It's not the social entrepreneurs. It's hard-nosed capitalists looking for a return, not sort of the do-gooders. Do-gooders are valuable. I mean, I was on the board of Greenpeace for six years, and so I see the huge value that they all play. But I think that when you think about making change at scale, whether we're talking about climate change, whether we're talking about the empowerment of women or providing clean drinking water... Everything has a trillion-dollar price tag associated with it, right? I mean, if you want to decarbonize our grid, it's a trillion dollars. If you want to provide energy access to the poor in all these countries around the world, it's a trillion dollars. I think that that requires some respect for the system. And I, look, I'm just like everyone else after 2008, you know, think that capitalism probably should be improved a little bit. But, <laughs> but, when, you, but when you think about the trajectory that Sun Edison took, there was one other competitor that started at the same time that we did. And that competitor took money from San Diego football players to provide financing for solar power purchase agreements for San Diego city schools. Um, and we decided to take $60 million from Goldman Sachs. After that process was over, Wells Fargo was banging a path to our door, so was MetLife and MassMutual and others, right? But if you got through San Diego football players, we don't know that your stuff actually works. We don't even know if they read the documents. That doesn't really actually force them into the rigor necessary 
to get to the next stage, get to the next stage. We're on track now, you know? And so I think that no one's going to give you a trillion dollars unless they believe that you're going to give them a solid rate of return on a risk-adjusted basis. And to make social progress at scale, you have to be good at business. Let's talk about where people can make a good investment in the clean energy economy. There's a number of publicly traded companies, Tesla, SunPower, et cetera, some $5 billion companies out there that seem pretty good. Where should an investor who wants to get in the clean economy, where should they be looking? Since 2003, we've invested roughly a trillion dollars into clean energy solutions, you know, as a world. The vast majority of that money went into project finance, right? So Wells Fargo invested in solar projects on Walmart's rooftops or Costco or Macy's or Whole Foods or Target, et cetera. None of those have lost money that I know of, not from institutions. So Goldman Sachs didn't lose any money on their fund. Wells Fargo, MetLife, MassMutual, none of those guys lost a dollar. And in fact, they've all been performing assets. Well, the big boys make money. It's the little guys who lose the money, right? No, but even the little guys, the little guys that invested in solar for the church that's in their community didn't lose money. The electricity company is still billing you every month for the power that you're using. And so for those guys who financed solar for their churches or for their schools or for their community centers or other things, they're still getting a check in the mail every month. I don't know if you call them social entrepreneurs or not, but Solar Mosaic, a couple Absolutely. of uh, former activists, Dan Rose and Billy Parrish, who created Solar Mosaic, try to bring crowdsourcing, crowdfunding to solar. People can fund a particular project and get better than a bank return, 4%. I'm making six on six. my portfolio in Solar Mosaic. Full disclosure, I've also put some money in there, but you wonder, <laughs> am I fully aware of that risk in there? I'm not so sure, but that 4%, 6% isn't free. There's some risk underneath there. Well, there's always risk, but you can make a portfolio. So like my portfolio with Solar Mosaic, you know, I just was testing it out, so I have like $1,000 with them, but I have $100 in 10 projects. So if one of those projects has a problem, the other nine hopefully should be doing okay. Are these things threatening to utilities? Do they see this as competition? Are they going to try to co-opt this or stab it in the heart at some point? Brad Matson. <laughs> well, of course, that's already happening. The big uh, debate now is focusing around net metering. And, and net metering is where if you have a solar power plant on your home, basically the power you pump into the uh, grid, uh, you get compensated for at the same rate that you charge. The meter runs backwards, so to speak. And the argument for the utilities is when the sun isn't shining, you're using our services. And therefore, this backup battery, which the grid acts as, is not being compensated. Because if you have solar on your roof, you generate electricity in the day. You basically buy it back at night. You're not paying for that service of sort of holding onto that electricity from when you generate it and when you need it. Jigashar, should people be allowed to keep that money? If I they're think, a net supplier? Yeah. Or pay some fee for using the grid? There are a lot of folks revisiting how that should work. And the utilities are absolutely in the throes of having to figure out what's going to happen to their 100-year-old business model and should it be upgraded. But the good thing is, is that there's a lot of common sense, dispassionate people showing that we're not actually taking down the grid, that we're not actually destroying reliable power, and that there is a reasonable pathway by which we can figure this out. Would you buy stock in a utility company now knowing that some of them face competition from their customers? I think the electric utility industry will be with us for many, many more decades. But I think their companies are going to be worth a lot less in the future than they are now because they'll be providing less services. Brad Matson, utility is going to be less valuable and less important in the future? Less valuable, certainly. Maybe more important, they're a blockade to yeah. progress. They're like dinosaurs. They will not move, and they'll fight instead. And they have the resources to fight, so they'll, they'll impede progress in most cases. So should government be involved in this discussion or not? Yes, absolutely, because they're the ones that can help change that process. How realistic is it that people can be off the grid with new storage technology, microgrids, that sort of thing? So if utilities are trying to block progress, can people just go around utilities and say, I'm going to have solar, battery in my garage, drive my car over some plate that then charges the electric car? Jigashar, is that realistic? Yeah. I mean, look, I think we've had off-grid homes since the 1970s. Yeah, but those are, right? those are hippies so, in the hills. I'm talking about... <laughs> well, no, they were, they were trying to hide the marijuana that they were growing up <laughs> in the <laughs> county um, from the DEA. But I think, look, we're in a situation now where there is tyranny. And where there is tyranny, there needs to be solutions to that tyranny. So in Hawaii, uh, electricity rates have gone on Oahu from about... 14, 15 cents a kilowatt hour just six years ago or seven years ago to over 30 cents a kilowatt hour now. So when someone knocks on your door and says, I can save you money using solar power, you're very open to that conversation. And you're seeing grid defections are way up in places like Hawaii. They're way up in other places. And today in Hawaii, it's completely cost effective to go off grid. 
Now, it's more cost-effective for the utility to say, in exchange for this fee, we'll interconnect you. But if they're just saying no, which is what they're doing right now, you could imagine people just getting pissed. People are thinking about going solar today. Should they consider leasing or buying? 80% of the market is leasing. Brad Masson, would you lease or buy? I think it's going to be a transition. The costs are coming down so fast. Right now, leasing is smart for most people. But if you have $10,000 what you were going to buy a car with, you might put that $10,000 into a solar power plant. Even Solar City is going to you know, loans. So I think we'll see both business models uh, develop here, and you're going to probably see growth of the loan model. Because it's complicated, Jigashar. It's more complicated than buying a car because you have these projection rates and think about kilowatt per hour. People don't really understand what they're buying. It's pretty darn complicated, right? Look, I think solar is super simple, right? I mean, we're going to charge you this flat cost per kilowatt hour. Here's the GE bubble meter that we're going to use to actually monitor how many we're doing. If you're just joining us, our guest today at Climate One are Brad Matson, CEO of Siva Power, and Jigger Shaw, Sun Edison. I'm Greg Dalton. One of the bellwethers I've noticed in solar is hearing advertisements on AM radio, clearly marketing solar to Joe Sixpack. It's also happening, Jigger Shaw, in red states. So tell us about the solar adoption around the country. It's not just sort of a Berkeley, Boston kind of thing anymore. When I was working at BP, we did the very first mass market marketing program for solar in 2003. And we did this study just to see who our customers were, et cetera. The vast majority of our customers identified themselves as Republican. And the vast majority of customers said that they were doing it because they wanted to give the utility the middle finger, right? <laughs> There's a lot of people out there who value their independence. I mean, you know, we're Americans. And so they value their independence and they like having some control over their destiny, which solar allows them to do. So that's one demographic, which is sort of the Green Tea Party. The second demographic is, of course, environmentalists and people who care about climate change and folks who actually want to do the right thing while saving money. But there's a third demographic, which is a lot of people on fixed income. AARP is now inserting themselves in the process in Connecticut, in Wisconsin, and other places. So I think we have an extraordinary coalition of people. Brad Matson, you're looking to perhaps build a solar factory in the United States. What states are more receptive when it comes to welcoming solar industries, clean energy industries in general in the United States? New York is classic, you know, aggressive right now in terms of not only doing a research institution in Albany, but also they're trying to get a new solar factory there as well. Mississippi did quite a bit of work to try to bring solar manufacturing there, Oregon. So it goes state by state, but that changes over time. Let's talk about the other side. Jigger Shaw, we need to move away from dirty fuels because of climate change. You mentioned that utilities are going to be worth less in the future and have a different role. What about fossil fuel companies, oil and coal companies? Today, the largest coal company in the world is Peabody Coal, and Sun Edison stock price is higher than Peabody Coal, so we're worth more than Peabody Coal. I'm very proud of that. And as of this quarter, coal demand in China actually went down for the first time in 25 years. And China has pledged that they're not going to burn any more than a certain number of tons that they've already subscribed. And China's doing it for purely selfish reasons. China's saying solar and wind and energy efficiency and even nuclear is a lot cheaper than coal. In India, the quality of their local coal is so poor that they have to import coal. The rupee devalued from around 44 rupees to the dollar to over 60 rupees to the dollar a year ago, primarily because of their import costs for fuel. And so, you know, the new prime minister is saying, look, we've got to get off of imported oil and imported coal, and we've got to figure out how to use more domestic sources. And solar and wind are two of the things he's already publicly announced he's going to be pushing in a big way. But, you know, the state of California really, as much as they've stepped up, hasn't stepped up, right? I mean, you think about Japan and Germany and where they are, it's time for the governor of California to say, we are going to be 100% renewable energy by X state. And I think we can. So you think that the technology's there, it just needs yeah. some government leadership? NREL, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, which is part of the Department of Energy, has said that the technology's there. Google is putting a billion and a half dollars of their money behind investing in renewables. The International Energy Agency that's done a study that said not only is it actually completely technically possible, and the Germans and others have proven that it's technically possible, but these new studies have actually said that it's cheaper to actually go to microgrids and go to local power and go to these places, then business as usual, replacing old stuff with the same old stuff that we put in 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. And the shocking thing about it is it's the only way that we have to restore blue-collar work. The solar industry is now you know, hiring between two and 3,000 people a month. 
Brad Matson. I think that we don't have to have a goal of 100%, in my personal opinion, but we're like less than 1%. So we can grow nationally 30 times where we are today without getting into this controversy. And I think by the time we see that growth rate, uh, some of the storage technologies being invested in now that will solve these problems will be in place. So we really don't have to worry about too much solar or too much wind on the grid ever in the United States, as far as I'm concerned. And one of the key issues is China has been accused of dumping solar panels. They put in a lot more money than the United States. There's a trade dispute. There's now tariffs on Chinese panels coming to the United States. Jigashar, is that the right thing to penalize China for their success creating low-cost solar panels? We have systematically, since the late 70s, decided that we wanted China to manufacture our stuff, right? I mean, whether it's the iPhone or whether it's solar panels, and we have built our entire supply chains in China such that if you try to build solar in the United States right now, it's hard because the U.S. government really hasn't put together the program necessary to support manufacturers to be you know, competitive. And so we're not getting a lot of local U.S. manufacturing, and we're paying 20% more for solar panels. Brad Matson. If you asked should they be penalized, the answer would be yes. I mean, there's no doubt. I don't think anyone argues they were dumping. You can't have one company just try to take over the whole market and, and use a predatory pricing in order to get a large market share. But look where we are today. China has 80 to 90 percent of the world market in solar panels. So it's happened. Now, if we are serious, we want to have manufacturing in the United States, then why isn't the government doing work to support that? Because actually, in a lot of ways, the government works against it. My bottom line on this is... We have to do something to spur manufacturing in the United States because this is a strategic technology, and I don't know why we haven't woken up to that fact. We're talking about climate wealth at Climate One. Let's have our audience question. Welcome. In my thinking, in 20 years, solar panels will be obsolete, and what you wrap your buildings with will produce the solar energy you're looking for. How far away do you think that is? Brad Matson, you're the thin solar guy here, so... We're talking about building integrated photovoltaics, and uh, I think that that technology is pretty far away. The challenge is, when you look at the technology necessary to continue to make solar cheaper, and its continued growth really requires pushing down the cost curve continually, it's hard for some of the newer technologies that are used in BIPV to really get to scale fast enough. And what happened here recently with China, where they put in about you know, 30 gigawatts of capacity, it makes it hard for a lot of the BIPV startup companies to survive. So it's a question if those technologies will really come to fruition. Really, we've kind of come down the scale curve in kind of the dominant technologies, and it'll be really tough for the new ones to come in. Let's have our next question. Welcome. Thank you. Isn't the entire solar panel system reliant upon cheap labor in a country uh, with less worker protections, health conditions, unionization and such? So aren't we really exploiting poor countries in order to make our solar system work? Brad Matson. To some degree, the current state of the art, that would be true. What China did when they really made a decision to get into solar with both feet, they said, we have to expand fast. And what they took was this older technology, literally, you know, 10, 20-year-old technology, and they took the existing factory, and they just said, let's build a 1,000 of them. So they really used a lot of low-cost labor. I really believe that that's going to fundamentally change. It's already changing. In the United States, the way you do that is really high-speed, 100% automated tools, which really doesn't have cheap labor. In fact, what you want is technicians and engineers. And those systems become half the cost of manufacturing in China. So you can, with fully automated tools, basically have lower costs than you can if you manufacture with labor, even cheap labor in China. Last question. Welcome. I agree we're having a bit of an energy revolution and an employment boom, but it's happening in natural gas and it's happening in North Dakota and, and Wyoming. What is the real threat of cheap global natural gas curtailing solar or renewables? Jigershaw, the real energy boom is natural gas. The reason why natural gas boomed the way it did was because all of the capital structures, all of the trust relationships, all those pieces were already in place. So at the time at which, you know, Anadarko and Chesapeake and others wanted to raise 20, 30, 50 billion dollars, they knew who to go to to hit up for that money to get there. We're finally putting those relationships in place. So that's why we're now at a place where we can actually grow and we will approach 20,000 megawatts of deployed solar in the United States in, in 2016 alone. On the electricity side, natural gas and coal cross over somewhere in the $3.60, $0.70 a million BTU range. And so now that natural gas is up to $4.20, $4.30 a million BTU, coal is cheaper than natural gas again. So I don't believe that natural gas is this threat to solar and wind. And so I'm not overly concerned about the natural gas revolution. I'm bullish about renewable energy and where it's going. 
Brad Matson, CEO of Siva Power, and Jigger Shaw, founder of Sun Edison, have been discussing making a profit from the switch to clean energy. You're listening to Climate One. You can join the conversation on Twitter. Our handle is at Climate One. Finally, we take a look at the controversial Keystone XL pipeline. Supporters say the route from Alberta's tar sands to Gulf Coast refineries would deliver needed fuel from a friendly neighbor and be a boon to the U.S. economy. Opponents say it's a test of the country's commitment to get off fossil fuels, and building it could ignite a carbon bomb. Our next guest will take a look at this combustible issue with me. David Baker is energy reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle. Jack Cushman is a former New York Times reporter and author of Keystone and Beyond, Tar Sands and the National Interest in the Era of Climate Change. And Dan Matross is Trade Commissioner on Science and Sustainable Technologies with the Government of Canada. Here's our conversation about fueling the future. Jack Cushman, let's begin with you and tell us the backstory. There's this pipeline that no one ever heard of until a few years ago. Where did it come from? Set the stage for us. You know, when George Bush and Dick Cheney came to office, they consulted extensively with the oil industry and with the tar sands industry in Canada. And they came out of that review with two key thoughts in mind for their oil policy. One was U.S. production of oil had peaked and was going to be in decline for as long as the eye could see. And the other was that U.S. demand for oil was going to continue to go up. And therefore, we really needed to break our reliance on unstable sources of supply, and that meant turning to Canada. What we now know, of course, is that U.S. oil production had not peaked, and U.S. demand did not go up. So those fundamental premises were wrong. There was another thing that was changing over these years as we got to the Obama decision, and that was the view of climate change. He has a policy that emphasizes the increasing certainty of the climate science, and his entire agenda has been to recognize that carbon dioxide is a pollutant and that it's, he says, one of his priorities to rein in this pollution in accordance with the new science. So it's come down to the question of whether building this pipeline would have a deleterious effect on global warming. This is a completely different basis for the decision than was envisioned at the start of this process. Damatros, will this uh, pipeline, is it a big pipe bomb that's going to blow up the climate <laughs> and, and really hurt future generations? The, the oil sand story itself is actually a story of innovation. And I think we're, we're seeing that global demand for oil is increasing. And the oil in the Alberta oil sands is going to get to market. There's, there's other pipelines, there's rail, and environmental performance is part of the competitiveness of the oil product that's coming out of Alberta. Though NASA scientist James Hansen has said, burn all of the carbon that's in the Alberta tar sands, and it's game over for the climate. So if all of that oil is burned, we are toast. The key word there is burn. Most of the emissions that come from oil, 80% or more, come from the actual combustion of the gasoline in the car. So do Alberta oil sands for that production, that other 20% piece, do they emit more greenhouse gases? Yes and no. There's a spectrum. It's, uh, I, I guess I take the... Uh, the uh, 6 to 12% dirtier is, yeah, is kind but of the, there's the a range. Spec- there's a spectrum that depends on production and geology. I, I liken it to kind of the cereal aisle analogy. Do Cheerios have a lot of sugar in them? Well, some Cheerios have more sugar than others. Jack Cushman? First of all, there are some of these Cheerios from Alberta that actually require more energy to produce than the finished product contains at the time of the end of use. Now, the idea that this oil is going to come to market anyway, that's an argument by assertion because 66% of the currently known fossil fuel reserves need to stay in the ground. This is science that is becoming increasingly well understood. We know how much carbon is in the atmosphere. We know how much we're allowed to put in the atmosphere and still avoid the more dangerous risks of climate change. We're halfway to burning our whole carbon budget. And so the name of the game now is to radically change our energy systems so that we do not require the emission of carbon dioxide and the fulfillment of our 
energy needs. So to say this oil is going to come to market anyway, it makes me feel like um, we have to serve booze to the kids at our house, because if we don't, they'll just drink booze someplace else. And that is not responsible parenting. I want to get David Bacon here on this in terms of will this oil find a way to market or can it stay bottled up in Alberta? I think this touches on why Keystone has turned into such a potent political issue for environmentalists and also why it's been so tough for Obama because he's pretty gung-ho on fracking oil in the United States. And essentially he'd be saying to Canada, our closest trading partner and neighbor and friend and ally, okay, I'm going to develop my carbon. You... I'd like you to keep yours in the ground. Sorry about that. That's a very difficult conversation to have. It's the reason why this is such a potent symbol, and it's the reason why it's such a a pain for the president. Dan Matross, let's ask you. You have a PhD from Harvard in climate science. What do you think about the notion that carbon has to stay in the ground, and if it is burned, it will destabilize climate to the point of civilization will be unrecognizable as we know it? More carbon you put in the atmosphere the more risk you increase, but it's degrees of risk. The IPCC set a target of two degrees Celsius of global temperature increase. That's the UN group of scientists. Exactly. It's a real risk. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. As a scientist, I can't. But we have to manage the degrees of risk and put that in an economic context. Jack Cushman? The Canadian government says that It's currently not meeting its existing Copenhagen commitments on climate change purely because of the emissions that are continuing from the Alberta oil sands fields. Now, there are energy solutions that can get you there. TransCanada knows how to build a solar plant and operate it. They're a widely diversified company, and they get good returns off of those investments. Damatros, your response to that? If the market, namely the United States in this case, radically reduces its uh, dependence on fossil fuels, for instance, and moves to electric vehicles, Canada's ready to sell electrons. We've got a lot of hydropower. Canada runs uh, 60% of its electricity grid on hydropower. There's very strong capabilities in nuclear. So Canada's actually ready to keep on exporting energy and being a strong energy partner with the United States. Let's get David Baker on that. It's easy to blame the supplier, but we're smoking this crack in our cars. What about electric cars in the United States? Can they grow fast enough to make a difference? Fast enough, that's the question. I mean, they are growing. They're growing at a pretty decent growth curve, Um, but it's still going to be a pretty slow adoption rate until I think we reach some kind of tipping point. Something like 100,000 cars selling with plugs these days. There's 16 million cars sold in the country every year. Put it this way. I mean, I I spent a week in New York City vacation uh, in April. Did not see a single EV the entire time. When people around the country see this on a regular basis and know people who have them, then you may see some, like, rapid-fire adoption. We're still going to be burning a lot of gasoline, Most people will still be using internal combustion engines. Those engines are getting better and better, in part because of the rules that we adopted here in California, and then Obama took nationwide. That's David Baker, energy reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. Other guests today here at Climate One are Jack Cushman, former New York Times reporter, and Dan Matross with the Consul General of Canada. I'm Greg Dalton. Jack Cushman, EVs are not going to scale fast enough until there's viable, affordable alternatives. Petroleum's the It's not up to the market. It's up to us. If you put a price on carbon, you're certainly going to get a response in the competitiveness of the Tesla vehicle or the Nissan vehicle to a conventional internal combustion engine. Damatros, you talk about the solution being carbon pricing. We actually have carbon being priced in certain spots. So in fact, in Alberta, there is a levy on on carbon. There's a uh, very, very low. Well, I'm not going to say it's low. I'm going to say there's a price. It's a $15 per ton levy on the carbon of oil produced in Alberta. It's higher than the United States has. Fair enough on that. All right. It's higher than California's. Higher than California's. Higher than California. It is not a levy on the production of carbon. It's a performance fee that for a company that does not increase its energy efficiency by 12%, However, the result of this is that as long as production from the tar sands is going up, companies can meet this performance standard and the emissions of carbon dioxide will continue to go up. It's different than the carbon tax that's applied in British Columbia, which is a pure, simple carbon tax 
which has had the desired effect of bringing down carbon emissions at a time when British Columbia's economy has been very strong. Details matter. Damatros, British Columbia is something that other people look at. It put a tax on carbon. The economy's still doing pretty well. Could that be a model for the United States or others? I think many people in the United States are looking at the British Columbia model. Basically, they set a target to reduce their emissions by one-third by 2020, and they charge a fee at the gas pump. It works out to about 25 cents U.S. per gallon. Jack Cushman talked about climate impacts. In Alberta, there are floods. Their increased frequency may be affected by, if not caused by, climate change. Are people in Alberta connecting their oil production with the climate impacts being felt in their own communities? Yes and no. They see that the large part of their economy right now is oil and gas-based. In the ag sector, they're seeing massive floods because of the, the weather disruptions this year in terms of rain coming at the wrong time, temperatures going up and down. So I think policymakers are aware in Alberta that there is, there is a challenge, and they actually are looking for solutions on their environmental performance and in fact, some of that money is flowing to California. I can point to a, a friend of mine who's got a, who's got a small startup that's uh, focused on some bio-based materials, and he just got uh, a half million dollars from Alberta's fund that comes from this carbon levy that Alberta's imposing. So it sounds, is, it's a is, there, is there awareness? I think there is. Yes. But is there a lot of economic interest in the oil sands? Yes, there is. I want to ask David Baker, stopping the Keystone Pipeline has had perhaps the effect of putting a lot of oil coming out of Canada and the United States onto trains. A lot of those trains have blown up, fallen into river, killed people. Let's talk about these oil trains and whether they might be more dangerous and worse than the pipeline. Well, it's an interesting judgment call to make there. I mean, the, the trains, the traffic is expanding really quickly in a way that I don't think anybody outside of the rail industry foresaw a couple of years ago. But at the same time, you think about a pipeline, which is pumping day in, day out, 24-7, and then these trains, which as big as they are, are you know intermittent shipping. I don't think that trains can really replace pipelines if they really want to expand production. You just can't get the volume, and it is also more expensive. Jack Cushman? Pipelines are a critical way of Canada's moving its oil to market because only in the absence of pipelines would they go to the extreme of shipping by rail. You know, this material is much more difficult to ship by rail than regular oil. You have to keep each individual car heated, or this stuff will congeal in the car, and you'll never get it out at the discharge point. And so once again, you're spending enormous amounts of energy to move your energy. Damatros. TransCanada just put in an application with the National Energy Board of Canada for a new pipeline called Energy East that's going to go from Alberta off the east coast of Canada. So it's going to go to New Brunswick. And we'd refine some of it in Canada, and then we'd put it on tankers to the Gulf Coast. So that would work out to roughly a dollar or two more than it would cost to send it via Keystone, to send it on a pipeline all the way across Canada, put it on a ship, and bring it into the Gulf Coast that way. So we can debate the merits on the greenhouse gas uh, aspects from a scientific standpoint, from a market standpoint, from an economic standpoint, but let's not underestimate the ingenuity of Canadians in one, bringing their product to market, and two, improving the environmental performance of the product. Americans well, would never underestimate Canadians. Jack Cushman, we've been beating up on Canada here, and some people say that they're a, a Boy Scout turned pusher, but what about the United States? Pursuing this all-of-the-above strategy, there's an oil boom in the United States, lots of people getting rich. You know, what about us? All of the above makes sense if you're willing to also say none of the below. The mountaintop removal of coal oughtn't to fit into an all-of-the-above strategy, no matter how ingenious the solution it is for bringing cheap coal to China. It's not the direction that we're trying to go in to eliminate carbon emissions within this century. Damatros. Canada's really looking to the U.S. for leadership here. Canada's got a, a natural resource-based economy. We want to cross the street in a pack. We don't want to be out there alone. We want to be in a pack that's uh, led by our large neighbor to the south. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. 
let's move on to solutions for a moment and maybe think outside the box a bit. And if we put it in the framework of carbon pricing, wouldn't North America, for example, be putting their businesses at a disadvantage for some time until the rest of the world caught up? If the U.S. does something, Jack Cushman, isn't that going to hurt the economy? I think that there's a great deal of evidence that moving to the next generation of energy supplies is going to provide a great advantage competitively to whoever does it first. One of the things that the carbon tax is intended to do is to create a market-based incentive for people to find the best possible way to conserve, to be more efficient, to produce cleaner energy. By recognizing the price of carbon dioxide, you drive innovation to the sources that have less carbon dioxide. It puts into the marketplace a new factor that allows people to say, yeah, I'll take solar. And just look at British Columbia. It's still beautiful, fantastic economy. I was up there a couple of months ago. They have a carbon tax. It's doing great. Let's have our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Recently, I've been um, really interested in energy efficiency bills in the U.S. I was just wondering if you have any comments on the Shaheen-Portman Act. Energy efficiency, Jack Cushman. It was a bill that had an array of provisions that would increase energy efficiency. It had bipartisan support. Everybody wanted this bill. It fell into collapse because there are some people in Congress who would rather attach a bill forcing the president's hand on the Keystone Pipeline to a piece of legislation that everybody wants than to see that piece of legislation move ahead. And so in in that one, Keystone was the poison pill that killed the Shaheen-Portman bill. David Baker. This is one area where there's a lot of activity, a lot of innovation, and a lot of sales going on that are somewhat independent of legislation. Silicon Valley right now is absolutely teeming with companies that do one version or another of energy efficiency. Everything from apps that go on your phone where you compete with friends to see how much you can cut your energy use, things like that to crunching gigantic amounts of data to figure out where your company is losing money in its energy bills. And those are all actually turning out to be pretty good lines of business to be in right now. So I would like to see the federal government tackle this, but at the same time, there is very much a groundswell that is happening independent of anything the government does, in part because businesses and people realize they can save money this way. We've been discussing our energy future in the Keystone Pipeline with David Baker, energy reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle. Jack Cushman, author of Keystone and Beyond, Tar Sands and the National Interest in the Era of Climate Change. And Dan Matross, Trade Commissioner on Science and Sustainable Technologies with the Government of Canada. Thank you for joining us this hour. Free podcasts of this and other conversations are available in the iTunes Store. Follow us on Twitter at Climate One. Please join us next time for another Climate One discussion about powering America's future. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineers are John Rieger and Valerie Castro. The editor is Claire Schoen. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio. Oh.